Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the legacy of the 17th century Scottish minister Robert Kirk, the Reverend Robert Kirk, who wrote the classic book, The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fauns, and Fairies in 1691. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, an Irish barrister who is the author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, The Empire of Scientism, The Dispiriting Conspiracy and Inevitable Tyranny of Scientocracy, Tech Bondage, Slavery of the Human Spirit, Human Entrance to Transhumanism, Machine Merger and the End of Humanity, as well as two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. Once again, a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, great to be with you, my friend, again. I look forward to the conversation. We'll be talking about the Reverend Robert Kirk and his mysterious, influential book, The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fauns, and Fairies. And I suppose uh, right at the outset, it's, it's useful to point out that Kirk took this very literally, even though it's today viewed by many as a work of folklore. Yes, uh, Kirk writes his book on the secret commonwealth, the original secret commonwealth. And when he's, a lot of people classify it as folklore and put it into the realm then of stories that are shared. And that's a mistake. It's clearly a mistake. And that, uh, that fact was recognized by people like Andrew Lang in 1893 when he said, well, this is psychical research or of the type of psychical research. It's not mere folklore because he was testifying, in my view, to his own experience and to others' experience. So he's a witness to a real phenomenon. So there is a problem insofar as a lot of people seek to equate such reports and such testimony with mere fantasy. And, and, and that is a mistake or mere folklore, as if there is no truth to it. And they put it into patterns and categories and taxonomies. So I, I would emphasize that he is witnessing a phenomenon from his own perspective as an experiencer, and he is testifying to other people's experience. And the reason why it appeals to me originally was because I recognized the phenomenon and the descriptions as consistent with what I had talked to uh, in Ireland or the people I had talked to and what I talked to them about. Well, you know, fairy lore is understood to be associated with Ireland and Scotland, but I don't think most of our viewers appreciate, or perhaps they do, that fairy lore can be found virtually in every culture. Well, it's very, very interesting. And there's a few 
clues of the kind of universality. The Irish word and the word which uh, with derivations in in the the Scots language. Now I have to say that in Ireland we call it uh, Gaelic, in Scotland it's Gaelic. It's the same language essentially. Uh, people might want to call it two different dialects. Some people claim it's two different languages. It's the same language originally. Um, and he talks about Hibernian, etc. So, so we're talking about a language which is essentially the same. And in, in that language, the word for fairies is she. So it's not got to do with fairies, which was a later word coming associated with France and, and coming from uh, the continent. So the word we're talking about is she, which refers to a number of things, including the, the other world or the mound where the, the, it was associated with, with, with the fairies. So the, uh, the Irish and, and Scottish context is, is quite unique, but it is very consistent, for example, with the Arabic stories. It's very consistent with uh, Islamic thinking of other beings that exist in the natural world and that, that are real in that sense. So when you think about the jinn, and the uh, or the gene genie uh, the genii and the ge- uh, geniuses even in the Roman context, and if you look at the associations, there's, there's a lot of similarities. The description that Robert Kirk gives of them is consistent with the description of the jinn in relation to they describe sometimes as as smokeless or a smoke a type of smokeless being a being made out of a, a type of smoke, a smoky entity. And these descriptions uh, come up in the Irish context as well, and the association with being underground, and even the idea of the magic carpet uh, is associated in some ways with stories of the way the fairies travel in the wind, and the wind is associated with the fairies. And the ideas, when you see, for example, leaves uh, traveling around in a vortex when you're out for a walk, it may be the fairies passing by. So there are cross-cultural associations. There's certainly a lot of similarities with the with the culture here, the ancient culture that's been forgotten about. But there is also, as well, a tendency for scholars to make too much of the connections because there is distinctiveness. And some areas are more distinct and have a longer tradition and a more persistent tradition than others and a more coherent tradition. So while it is a universal phenomenon... I, I, I'm a bit cautious sometimes to lump them all in the same boat. But yes, that this is a universal culture. But it was particularly strong among the Celtic peoples. And because of their, uh, the fact that Ireland was colonized, for example, from going back to 1169, and it was a process of colonization over hundreds of years where they weren't really integrated in the colonial experiment, they maintained a culture that was destroyed hundreds of years beforehand in other places. I think the point that's worth exploring further is the the question of should we regard all of these reports as as folklore or maybe only some of them as folklore or none of them as folklore? To what extent can we attribute any of these accounts to something more than just folklore? It's a very good question. You have to uh, put aside a certain uh, category that you have to be skeptical about. Uh, as with every phenomenon such as this, there's always going to be some kind of fraudulent, some exaggeration, something which is not real. Some, someone that wants to tell a story, we can put that aside. 
Then we have a certain uh, group of people who are uh, who are interested, for example, who have the second sight. Now, this was the reason why Robert Kirk in, engaged in this investigation, because the great scientist Robert Boyle was interested in second sight. And that was why that Robert Kirk, who, who had been transla- involved in translating the Bible uh, from uh, the Irish language into this into a Scots form in the Roman form, he he then began to investigate the connection between the second sight and the fairies. So there is an idea that the people that interact with the fairies have some gift, and it's interesting. The word she in one spelling is S I D H E, which then corresponds with the Sanskrit idea of the cities, and there may be the implication that. You have to be in a certain state in order to see the fairies. And people like Graham Hancock, for example, talks about the link between aliens and fairies, and he links it to being in an altered state. Often for him, that's associated with psychedelics or some other mind-altering substances. But it's clear that certain people who are intuitive can, uh, can see these things. And the second sight was an idea which was very, very important for scientists as well at the time. People forget that the scientists were very, very interested in these phenomena. And when they're talking about the second sight, or another term is on Daw, Shala is another uh, uh, term from the Irish language, uh, they're talking about what we today would refer to as remote viewing, telepathy, extrasensory perception, precognition. All those come within the idea. And also the various esoteric societies that were growing up in the 17th century were very interested in an idea of second sight, which had a number of different layers to it. So there are a certain category of people who have some authority in these domains that uh, have credibility, if you like. So there is, as part of the secret commonwealth, there was a letter by Lord Tarbot, who went to the Highlands and described situations of people telling what was going to happen in the future. It was very common among the Celts, among the, the Gaelic-speaking people. Now, you, could, you might say, well, why can't we go and find all these people, people now? Well, a good reason is a lot of the people were cleared out during the Highland clearances. There was an effort to, to cleanse the land of the native people, the indigenous people. that was going on for hundreds of years. But particularly in the 18th century, there was a clearance of this culture to, to, to other, other lands. So I suspect if you look back at some of the, or if you look at some of the people interested in second sight or in remote viewing in, in the United States, you'll find that they have a connection back to, uh, to the Celtic peoples or to the highlands. Uh, so so I, I would also, one last point, Jeff, I would also refer to the first Britain in space, Helen Sherman, who is also a chemist. And she said that she believes that aliens may be among us or probably are among us. And what she suggested, which I agree with, is that we make a presumption about life and the forms in which it takes. Uh, Kierkegaard is talking about natural phenomenon that exist. He's not talking about creatures that only exist in the imaginal world. And his description of fairies as being beings that were like congealed air uh, which having an astral-like body reminds me of discussions of plasmates and the 
the extra material of plasma, which of course was discovered by the by uh, Crookes. Uh, he called it radiant matter. There are different forms that we may not expect life to appear in. And recently scientists have been saying, well, plasma can be related to life forms. So perhaps these forms are are purely in a different material uh, manifestation that we haven't looked at yet. But if scientists say there can be different life forms on the Earth, and people have been saying for a long time that there are different life forms, and they can see them, and they have certain behaviours, and they, they exist or move through different dimensions, well, it seems difficult to dismiss them when people like Bernard Carr or many great scientists are telling us about all these different dimensions. So there is something about the, the liminal zone moving between different zones and different materials that, uh, that lend even a, a, a credible scientific basis on which to examine these. Well, of course, I have just finished writing an essay about evidence for the afterlife. And when we talk about communication with deceased individuals, it's very similar. There is an enormous body of empirical evidence. And yet many people who have a scientistic basis that the only thing that can be real to them has to be something you can touch and photograph in three dimensions. So they discount altogether the vast body of evidence for survival of consciousness after death. And I would assume that the possibility of, of a whole realm of beings, jinns or fairies or elves, is quite comparable to the existence of discarnate humans. I, I think that's correct. And the original motivation for... Um, for Robert, uh, Reverend Robert Kirk to uh, to put pen to paper and, and to write The Secret Commonwealth was he had been in London in 1689 supervising the translations of the Bibles. And uh, Robert Boyle who had financed the translations into, into Gaelic of the, uh, the Bible. So Robert, Robert Boyle, of course, is a great scientist. He's called a gentleman sci uh, scientist, but we have to remember that he was part of the colonial enterprise in, in Ireland. He, his father, the Earl of Cork, had taken over Walter Raleigh's plantations. So he's, he's from that, that, that background. So he, he had a, a good context in which to dedicate his time to, to science. That having been said, he's a very interesting man, and he believed that science and God were, were not incompatible and that, in fact, the exploration of science was totally consistent with the belief in God. That's why he engaged in his scientific experiments. And in, he is also the, the leading development developer of the experimental method following on from Bacon. It was afterwards, with Newton, there came a bit of a shift in emphasis but Bacon or, or, or Boyle was interested in alchemy. He was interested in spiritual matters. He had no problem with what is parapsychology. He believed that it should be investigated. And, and he was the benefactor, if you like, that encouraged the context in which Robert Kirk wrote. Now, Robert Kirk, when he's writing this, his motivation, one of his motivations is to set up a counter argument to atheism. Now, this is an important point to remember, and Boyle was concerned with this as well. 
So when we're talking about atheism in this era, it's not merely people that say, well, I don't believe that God exists. It's people who say, well, God doesn't exist, and therefore there are no other there are no other beings that can exist. These were all fantasies and delusions. So what they're criticizing is an ultra-materialist perspective that they recognize as being born at that time, after the Reformation and with the beginnings of the Enlightenment. They, they understood that an unduly materialistic perspective was leading to a dismissal of a whole range of phenomenon, which Boyle would have thought as unscientific, because it meant that people were a priori um, taking out certain uh, hypotheses. So Boyle w was w worked with a range of people, including Robert Hooke, and also John Wilkins. John Wilkins, at that time, who was also a minister, was trying to develop a vehicle which could transport men to the moon. So, so it's quite incredible. And there had been there had been books or pamphlets written about how to get to the moon. So these were people that were interested in space travel in a serious way. And Boyle was also discovering the nature of air and things that people didn't understand and other scientific uh, innovations. So they knew that there were invisible forces. And they also thought it was silly to disregard evidence from a whole range of educated and uneducated people to the existence of these phenomena. So there's a number of different forces, and it's, it's here sometimes, in my view, that science went wrong. It, it, something happened in its over-concentration on materialism, which was inconsistent with the idea of, of experimental philosophy as science was seen at the time. Well, it's very interesting to me that the title of Robert Cook's book, The Secret Commonwealth, was taken up by the contemporary author Philip Pullman in his uh, a whole series of fascinating novels that have been made into movies. And I know he makes a point in the most recent novel of referring to the physicists of his fictional world as being, I think he used the term experimental theology for what we would call physics. And I think he's hearkening back to a time when the, the world of theology and the world of science weren't considered separate. I think what happened is that at a certain time, around the, the 1700s, that science became solely an instrument of empire uh, for, for a while, and it continued. And that, that we can see that viewpoint manifest in Huxley's work in the 1860s. And we can also see a similar counter-reaction with Howitt's book on the history of the supernatural in 1863, where he's trying to counteract a similar view, an ultra-materialist view, viewpoint. And this this uh, idea has it continues up to today and, and and leads to, well, scientism in my view. It's nothing got to do with science because another point that people forget is when Boyle was developing his exper experimental method, he was using theological ideas to make it work. For example, the idea of conscientiousness and conscience was directly from the Judeo-Christian background. The idea of a scrupulous, transparent experiment uh, was on a on a theological foundation, and this this unwillingness of science, contemporary science, to identify its origins is 
is a bit perverse in some sense. It reminds me another interesting little intellectual history link with fairies and with this kind of thinking is in the trial of Joan of Arc, where some of the questioning by the clerics were about her association with a fairy tree in the village. And this, this, the point has been made by a writer called Karen Sullivan, that the clerics that were educated in the University of Paris, they couldn't have two inconsistent uh, ideas in their head. They have to have a total view of the world, which was consistent. And they couldn't tolerate the idea that somebody could be a Christian and maybe believe something else at the same time. So she attributes it towards that semantic Aristotelian kind of viewpoint that you've talked about before, A or not A. And there's a similar thing. Now I believe that we're talking about in the empire of uh, scientism, we have the church of science, where we're talking about authority that you can't you can't counteract if it doesn't if you don't have a material argument that you can prove it doesn't count and this is a deliberate policy if we go back to the 1860s by Huxley for example to dispirit discourse to take the ideas of the spirit out of out of discourse and that was why actually the idea of psychic forces came as a substitute because it was the only one that would be tolerated uh, in the context of psychological uh, psychic research well, the title The Secret Commonwealth implies that the, the realm of, of fairies and elves and, and other sprites and non-physical creatures, elementals, I, I mean, there's a whole zoo that one might fill with non-physical creatures, but that the, the title of a commonwealth suggests that they're organized in some fashion. He he says in the secret commonwealth that the the beings don't have they they may have a king but they don't have uh, organization in the same way although they do have tribes and groups so they're organized uh, slightly different it sounded slightly more authoritarian I'm not not sure it, it it varies but the the word commonwealth of course we have to bear in mind the context in which. Kirk is writing in the 17th century was a brutal a brutal period in European history it was a brutal period in Irish history in Scottish history in English history there was a lot of people who to me appear psychopathic who could rely on certain doctrines to enforce what has been described as genocidal policies in these contexts and then we have the whole era of the commonwealth with with Cromwell so Commonwealth, the idea is a, a very particular idea. So that may have informed some of the context of the secret Commonwealth, although it's an older idea. We can go back to Elizabethan period. And the, the, secrets, the secrecy refers to both the idea that uh, the idea that there is something that is hidden that we can't see. And there is also another implication because we also have a period of witchcraft persecution. And you wouldn't go around shouting about your knowledge about fairies too, too much. It's quite remarkable that he felt free to do so because there were still uh, people, men and women, predominantly women, but men as well, being executed uh, for witchcraft. After his death, there was still a man called Aikenhead, I think he was about 20, who was executed in Edinburgh for blasphemy. So 
we had also the context of the Reformation. And when you're in St. Andrews, where I worked and where, where the Reverend Kirk studied as well as Edinburgh, you can see the remains of the cathedral that was burnt down from religious fervor. It was a very, very difficult period. So secrecy was appropriate and also to indicate that a lot of the secret societies were beginning to form because, of course, Scotland was very influential in Freemasonry and uh, there were a lot of people who were exploring those, in a, those issues in a secret way and they were, they were integrating knowledge from the community into it. Uh, and the, the, the Commonwealth referred to the fact, yes, that there is a, another world, that there is another dimension. So the no notion of the otherworldliness that, that, that is in existence is clear throughout the process. And hence, people can be abducted. And according to the legend, of course, uh, well, not of course, we have there that uh, the Reverend Kirk was abducted and uh, he died on Dune Hill in Aberfoyle, which is where most of his life was spent. Uh, and where he was the minister, and he he's found on on the fairy hill behind the manse where he used to have a walk in the evening, and they believe, according to Walter Scott, who wrote about his, his history, they believe he was abducted by the fairies, so he wasn't really buried. There was only stones in the coffin, and that there's a great story about him appearing to a, a relative who was informed or to inform another relative to go to the christening, the posthumous christening of his child, and he would appear at, at the funeral. And this man, Graham of Ducre, had to throw a dagger over the head of, uh, of Robert Kirk when he appeared. So he would be released from Fairyland. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he, he did appear. He was seen, but the, the, Graham was was so shocked that he couldn't throw the dagger and, according to the legend, poor old Reverend Robert Kirk remains in, in Fairyland. Well, that legend brings up an, an interesting point, which is many people of my generation grew up with an understanding of fairies based on Walt Disney's portrayal of Tinkerbell. In, in Peter Pan, and there's even a famous scene, I think, in the movie where they say, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. And all the children are clapping their hands so that Tinkerbell can come to life and save Peter Pan. But actual fairy lore is very different from that. Fairies are not always nice and sweet like Tinkerbell. No, this was a certain victorian construction and we have all the cuttingly fairies and all that idea and uh, perhaps arthur conan doyle was a bit too gullible on some of uh, some of the issues so these fairies bear no resemblance to the fairies in 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 real life if we can say that um and th th there's a number of features about the fairies that bear remarkable parallels uh, correspondences with uh, UFOs and abductions. There's often a great sense of disorientation in time and space. And there's an idea in Ireland of the stray sod. If you if you walk in a particular place, you will get lost. You won't know where you are. You could disappear. You could think you're away for a short period of time and you won't recognize familiar places. So this distortion of time and space is associated with uh, with the fairies. Uh, you also have to be careful not to do something uh, that they don't like because they will 
if you mess with them, they will get revenge on you. So I was talking to my aunt who lives in London the other night, and she's nearly 90. And I remember her telling me these stories, and I remember my mother telling me these stories, and my grandfather, uh, years ago. So I, I was just asking her to see how she remembered them. And she would say, for example, she remembers her brother coming back with wood from the circle, which would be associated with the fairies. And uh, the grandfather says, where did you get that wood? And they described the place. And he says, well, bring it back straight away. You know, it was a long way away, but they, they you weren't allowed to, to touch those things. And if you did, if you took something from the fairies, you might go blind, for example. And they had certain... They had certain well-known uh, remedies against uh, against this process. For example, if you're ever going around Ireland in a donkey and cart, Jeff, in the future, when you're enjoying the highlight, <laughs> and you get lost, and you don't recognize where you are, and you think that the fairies might have led you astray, the solution is to turn your jacket inside out. <laughs> and that, that that's one of the stories. But actually, I was thinking about that, and the words... The word stroke, according to some people, is linked to the idea of the fairy stroke or being touched by the fairies. So this, this idea of disorientation may have described a medical condition or it may be related to that. And uh, the, uh, the the idea that you, you can be disorientated. And in fact, God forbid, if someone is having a stroke, uh, if they're able to put their jacket on inside out, it's a good indication that they're thinking fairly okay. We don't have to worry about them. So, so th th there are strange connections. But these beings also could abduct you. So you have to be careful. Uh, now, I, I don't necessarily believe the story about Kirk. I think later ministers may have not liked the, what Kirk was up to, and may or, or some people may have. I don't know, but there is so there is quite uh, recurrent records of that story. So, so, so there may be different different angles to it. Uh, but this story of abduction is, is very strong. There's unfortunate elements as well. There was a murder in Ireland, and there were probably more than one associated with the idea that someone had abducted uh, abducted the being and replaced them in some way that they were dealing with a change, a changeling or oh, Jeffrey. That's, that's not him. That's not Jeffrey. He's not himself. And then they might, they might try and kill you to release your spirit. That that's a, a bit dangerous. So we can see problems in that context, but the beings uh, could abduct you. They could abduct women who had given birth to suckle uh, children in the other domain. And there are many descriptions of, of of women going to to the different domains and descriptions of domains of light etc there are also other there are, there are a range of types of fairies there, there are those plasma plasmate ones if you like that i was talking about uh, there are beings that shape shift that take the form of, of people there are beings that are more like uh, orbs of light the uh, uh, globes of light and there are beings who are very uh, tall, noble, like humans, but but very beautiful and uh, and very enticing, very beguiling. So there are a whole range. He he doesn't focus on the on them all. Other people like Evan Wentz does, of course, who who went to Ireland and who talked to A. E. Russell, and he describes a a fuller uh, picture of the range of beings that we have. But you can't get away from the association with some of the stories, even. 
the stories of people like Whitley Strieber, for example, sound very remarkably consistent with the idea. And also the idea maybe that these beings are, are living amongst us. They're not necessarily coming down from the craft. Although if you look at the, if you look at the stories of, of people so, or races in Ireland associated with the fairies, like the two had they done on, there, one of their foundation stories was that they came from a craft in the sky. So there is, there are plenty of examples uh, which suggest that uh, it, it's not a modern phenomenon. There's so many examples of being ships in the sky. The idea that it was something that happened in California in the 1950s is 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 a nonsense. You know, it, it's a very old uh, idea of, of of interaction. But yes, they they are they can be malevolent. If you mess with them. there are different types, but generally, Kirk is very very clear that these are good people and they're called the Sluema, the good people people think that that's just a euphemism not to refer to them but people like Kirk believed that uh, they, they were good and that they were to sh they were showing us something they were showing us about the nature of existence and he believed that was actually showing us about divinity but uh, I would suggest he was trying to say that uh, if you accept that these beings exist well, then maybe you can accept that your own being is bigger than you think it is. Now, I understand that Kirk's book, uh, although it was written in 1691 uh, as a, a handwritten manuscript, presumably, that, that it really wasn't put into print and published uh, until much later. I think it was 1815. So maybe he was uh, being very cautious about what he knew. He died just after he wrote it. So he's down in London, uh, 1689. It's written 1691. He dies in 1692. Now, some people may believe that the fairies didn't want this good information or intelligence to be disclosed. You can make your own mind up on that. So he wasn't around. So the, they, they reckon there's about four uh, manuscripts at a time. Uh, there may be more. So there's a handful of manuscripts. And it was Walter Scott that uh, that released, uh, as you said, in, in 1813, he, he published it. And Walter Scott was very, uh, again, a legal background. He was very interested in these stories. He seems to downplay some of them into something like fantasy at times, but he's very well informed about folklore. And of course, he published, we have the letters that he wrote on demonology and witchcraft. So people had to be careful not to venture into the witchcraft domain. Uh, so there, there, there's a fine line there. But Walter Scott uh, publishes, uh, and then later Andrew Lang publishes in 1893. And we also have associations with other associations that emerged through this process. For example, Jules Verne w was very interested in, in Scotland, and he had Scottish connections, and he travelled to Scotland. And he also... Uh, like Scott did, travelled to Aberfoyle. Now, Aberfoyle is in the centre of Scotland. It's like in a triangle above Glasgow and Edinburgh, which are, are very close, and it's on the kind of diagonal between the lowlands and the highlands. It's a gateway to the Trussocks. It's, it's Rob Roy country. Uh, so it's, again, a liminal zone in the, in the uh, not only bilingual, bicameral mind of Scotland, in a sense. And uh, Jules Verne wrote a book about 
an underground uh, involving a mine and people underground, which was set in uh, in New Aberfoyle. So, so, so this this connection with science fiction continues, and also uh, Jonathan Swift was influenced by Robert Boyle, and Jonathan Swift, of course, the Irish writer, wrote Gulliver's Travels. So, science fiction emerges in from this era to some extent, and it's associated with it. A genuine interest in science and a genuine interest in—I'm uh, not going to call it folklore—in in beings like the fairies and beings on the ground, and that was continued. Bulger Lytton wrote *The Coming Race* about the Vril who lived underground, uh, and H.G. Wells, and that. So we have this—we have this influence on science fiction, which which goes back, can be traced in some ways to to, to Kirk, and remember, of course. That well, Kirk, the Reverend Kirk's father, who was a minister, was James Kirk. And funny enough, who is that James Kirk? He's the man who's in charge of the Starship Enterprise. And also, in Star Wars, we have the Sith, which is the which refers back to is one of the words he used for the fairies as well. So his influence was probably far bigger than than we expect. And of course, in the back of the Secret Commonwealth. The second book, uh, Philip Pullman acknowledges uh, the contribution of the the, the title uh, from from the Reverend Kirk, and he said uh, that he stole it. <laughs> that's, that's the words that Pullman Pullman says. Uh, uh, one point about the Secret Commonwealth. I, I've just flicked through it a couple of times. I know a lot of people uh, love love the book, um, and. Uh, he talks very interestingly about all these different dimensions. But there are some writers who write this type of stuff. I'm not saying about Pullman. And they're talking about fantasy, but they don't believe in any of this. They believe that this is something which is constructed. And it's interesting. I'm not saying this about Stephen King. I don't know enough about his beliefs. But if you look at it, of course, we're talking about uh, an interdimensional being. And if you look at the places, Derry, Derry is an Irish word and a place in Ireland, and it means uh, an oak wood or a wood. Uh, and we have these translations, if you like, consciously or unconsciously, from this going back to this type of fairy lore, not just in Scotland, of course, but in, in Ireland, which has impacted on the, the literary imagination. Uh, and uh, what um, Disney actually had contacts with Ireland. His family had been in Ireland uh, for a while, and uh, coming from uh, France or wherever they came from. Um, and he didn't he didn't do a lot of research when he came to Ireland and the fairies, and, and he talked to some people, um, but uh, he was more interested in his particular view. He was interested in in Irish history. He was interested in in fairies, uh, but he's making when he's doing his stories about leprechauns and that he has to make a commercial uh, thing so it's it 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 may be it may not rep- represent his uh, knowledge or, or or wider interest in these things we have Jacques Vallée who wrote many decades ago the book Passport to Magonia a very serious scholarly book looking at the uh, legends associated with fairy lore and comparing them with the reports of people who believed that they had had encounters with non-human aliens associated with what we now call unidentified aerial phenomena. Jacques Vallée is a very serious thinker that has to be considered. I found myself looking back at his stuff on a number of different dimensions. 
not least because as uh, from his mathematical background he was involved in the origins of the internet and he's also warned against uh, a misuse of the internet he's one of those scientists that have said even though his background we have to be very very careful uh, but in relation to UFOs and aliens, we, we we know about his, and you've done a, released an interview recently, one of your great old interviews with him. But uh, he was clear, it seemed quite clear about the connection between this, uh, these stories and the reports, the, the constant reports of the phenomenon associated with fairies and the link with uh, UFOs or the po potential link between them, indicating a phenomenon that need to be studied at least or need to be considered. And for me, that rep that's what science should be about. It's, it's open-mindedness. And when you use the word aerial, of course, uh, these were creatures that Kirk described. They, they come through the air. They're associated with the air. They can travel through the air. They can move through the air. And of course, we have in uh, Shakespeare, we have Ariel, in the Tempest, who is a creature who is imprisoned in a tree. Some people believe that Kirk was imprisoned in a tree on this fairy hill. Um, but we have that idea. And also Shakespeare in A Midsummer's Night, Night's Dream has, has Puck, who is related to the Irish Puka, who you have talked about with Robert Anton Wilson. So these beings... Uh, can't be really dismissed when you look at the whole range of, of ideas and uh, it's not just a set of stories that, that, that have come up and when you when you take someone with the mind of Valet who is very very well informed who's very pragmatic who's very capable of seeing the negative side of things uh, he's a very serious a serious thinker and uh, I I, I I believe him and I share the same view in relation to the correspondences and the necessity to be open-minded looking at these. The idea that we have this strange idea that when we meet these extraterrestrials that they're going to come in some very old 1970s mechanical ship and arrive down and we're going to, you know, or and loads of lights coming over. But it's, it's a kind of old-fashioned view of what intelligence beings will be able to do my belief will is that the the more intelligent beings will look much more organic than than we talked about and their uh, the ways of interacting will be much more organic uh, and that we're talking about interdimensionality that the idea that they can move between different dimensions uh, and the, uh, the there's a range of there's a whole range of people that you've talked about on, on these issues that 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 um, that, that share or, or are open to those views. Other people, Graham Hancock, for example, talks about uh, a similar view. But uh, Jacques Vallée is certainly a leading a leading figure that we should uh, respect his views on, on in this context and, and can speak from a scientific background on, on the uh, the importance of the hypothesis, at least. Another point that you raised in the beginning of our discussion is the notion of second sight. It might be equivalent to clairvoyance, or it might be something even a little different. I'm not sure, but I believe there have been studies now suggesting that in the highlands of Scotland, uh, the notion of second sight was rather common and accepted. The, the idea of second sight seems to have been very common. Uh, Kirk 
attributes it only to men. Now, there's a very good reason why he would have done that. I think he would have been concerned to protect uh, women from accusations of witchcraft. If if you had been in that period, you are not going to go around quoting women who might be tried for witchcraft. So I think that's why he said it was associated with men in particular, although he does use evidence uh, from from women. Uh, it's clear that uh, men and women had this second sight. There's remarkable stories of of uh, being able to to see the the, the future. That Lord Tarbert, when he went up the Highlands, he describes the men stopping on occasions, and he's asked them what's happening. And and usually there's a story about oh I see this I see. Uh, I see the English soldiers coming over the hill, which was funny because no English soldiers, but they did come afterwards. Or I see a dead man in the chair and there is a man hurt and comes in. Or I see a, a person being carried out in a coffin. Now, this was very, very common. And that type of view would have been common in Ireland. That sense of premonition, the sense of clairvoyance, the sense of he talks about seeing people, the Highlanders seeing their friends in America uh, able to see a remote viewing is, is there as well so it, it was there as a gift it, it's in relation to the second sight there was the idea that certain people had it of course one interesting point is that both Robert Boyle uh, and Kirk were seventh sons and seventh sons usually have are prone to this power. In Ireland, it was the seventh son of a seventh son who got this this power. And there are people with certain powers in Ireland still, and healers that still exist, um, although science doesn't doesn't appreciate them uh, so, so much. Uh, and this second sight refers to all the things that you have been talking about in your program for, for years and all, all your work. And it indicates the uh, abilities that we have it indicates this, the cities. It indicates that idea of certain skills. Um, how they came about, there can be debate over that, whether people... It, it did run in certain families. There are certain families that uh, were associated with certain uh, gifts. And figures, for example, in Ireland, like the Ban She, and again, She is the, the, the same figure, Ban is woman. They... And, and my grandfather tells stories about seeing the banshee. I mean, it's not that long ago, but the banshee was also associated with premonition of death in certain families, uh, in certain places. So there, there, there's a very strong uh, tradition of precognition. The second sight could be uh, could be uh, shared by putting your your left foot under the right foot of a wizard and your hand on the shoulder and this there's, there's certain ways or there's another hair tethered hair uh, ceremony a very complicated one that can help with the with the seeing things but uh they admitted that other people or you know could share these experiences and certainly around the fairies it could happen to anybody in ireland it was th- those those uh, ideas weren't associated necessarily with a limited class, they were fairly uh, uniform. That that, that uh, anyone could see them, as far as far as I can can tell. And I understand that Reverend Kirk really writes about his own second sight and includes personal stories in the book, The Secret Commonwealth. It seems to me that he is speaking about. Uh, he's speaking in the first person without speaking in the first person. And I suppose he's being a bit 
uh, cautious because he might run the risk of fingers pointing at him. And he has a particular position and we don't know about the views of, of, of the people at the time. Remember as well that there was great divisions within Protestantism between Presbyterians and Episcopalians and politics, there was a pendulum swinging. So he had to be a bit circumspect, but it's quite clear. He says that the seventh son has the powers and that, you know, he is a seventh son. So when he's when he ta talks of telling who the fairies are and what they are and how they can be seen, that they can be seen at twilight, for example, which is an important point. Uh, I think that that's underestimated. Um, for example, it seems that we change our vision at twilight, that the, the, the body automatically reacts. So we the rods and cones change as far as I remember reading. And it, there may be that there's a little window of perception which is opened at that time which is why that we see them or, or where the stories are often associated with twilight. There may be some other reason, uh, but it's clear that to me that he's talking about a first in a first person way and his some of the statements about him after he died, about him and his kind were, were, were suggestive that he was a different type of, of, of person um, and that uh, yes, I, I, I would say they're first. A lot of them are first-hand accounts, but it wouldn't have been wise to refer to them so much. And certainly, he, he does respond or make comments on Lord Tarbot's um, observations from the Highlands about his experiences, and he seems to be correcting them a bit or to to realign them a bit more in uh, consistently with his own views. Well, we still live in an age where if people report their communication with beings that are invisible or not apparent to other people, they risk all sorts of problems ranging from social ostracism to perhaps being diagnosed as mentally ill. For me, there's a very strange aspect of it. If I look at descriptions of contemporary belief in fairies in Ireland, for example, or from people who have done recent studies, it seems quite clear that a lot of people and a lot of young people don't believe in, in these uh, things. Now, again, th there can be different evidence, but it's quite clear to me that scientism has taken over. And I think it's a great loss because we're losing a, uh, a pre-Christian uh, philosophy, culture, religion, if you like, faith, as Wentz talked about, that is a significant uh, contribution. And also that these beliefs protected the landscape. They were never protected by legislation until uh, the 20th century. But people didn't go near those areas because they were regarded as holy or sacred or having power. So they were protected by cultural beliefs. I believe a lot of them will be destroyed uh, in the next few decades, unfortunately. Um, but when you begin to regard everything as superstition, as because it doesn't fit into the present paradigm of science, you're going to lose a lot. It, it, it does sadden me because I think it, it, it indicates a failure to appreciate the full extent of our own consciousness, to be open-minded to the possibilities that there are a whole range of other phenomena that exist. And when we look back at the, the really good science, they don't exclude those possibilities. So I, I think 
there is there is a, a, a good science and a bad science, and there's good religion and bad religion, good spirituality and bad spirituality. When we get bad science and bad religion, we're in, we're, we're in a big, uh, there's a big problem. Uh, I believe that good science and in a proper context, which is not claiming too much, which doesn't drift into scientism, and informed spirituality are going in the same direction. And as I've, I've, I've said before, that if you look at all these figures, for example, like Boyle, they're interested in spiritual light and they're interested in physical light. They investigate things because their curiosity leads them. And spiritual investigation often follows the same symbols in a different way. They look at light. When we're talking about spiritual light, for example, there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about the nature of light in other dimensions. If there are all these dimensions, well, how does light behave in these other dimensions? And if we're talking about all the every spiritual experience of significance at some stage has something got to do with light in it, whether at the stage we're dying, at the stage with UFOs, or, or internally, or Kundalini, there's light involved in it. Well, perhaps we should think in terms of different dimensions and spiritual light that I've talked about before. So how we can begin to close our mind down and dismiss the evidence of people because we believe that these people were primitive and uneducated like us today is beyond me. I think we have to approach these issues as good scientists do with proper humility and proper open-mindedness and ask, well, whether where, is there not something there? If someone who has been to space and is a chemist can say that they believe that aliens are among us or here, uh, it sounds a bit silly to me for someone that, that believes they know about science, but is really talking about the indoctrination they've got off television about scientism, that they can dismiss their uh, culture or they can dismiss these opportunities and not consider the full range and the full spectrum. And even, even the idea, which is in Islam as well, that, that some of these figures can possess us that they could move into our space. It's not in, inconceivable that some of the uh, some of the ideas associated with possession may in the future be associated with the implication of, of a, other material forms uh, that are capable of explanation. Uh, so so, so uh, uh, it's a shame. I think we have lost a lot of the people from these lands. We've lo lost a lot of the culture. The language is disappearing. Uh, the culture will disappear. That a great richness is under pressure, and it's under pressure because of scientism, not not science. Uh, I think science and spirituality, as as Jeffrey Kripal says a, a number of times, can work together very very well. And I think it's a shame to be so dismissive. It's a shame to not listen to people. It's a shame not to talk to the old people and not to ask them about the stories and what they believed or what they didn't believe and to get their perspectives and to look back at the records that are there and to begin to approach them with a degree of respect, distinguish and discern, distinguish what's bad, uh, discern what's, what's useful about it, extract what's useful and apply it in a context. And certainly bear in mind that people today can also have very strange experiences, mystical experiences, and experiences associated. It could be associated with electromagnetic changes to, to, to the body. We talked about Philip K. Dick, Robert Anton Wiltz, all those figures have had very strange, uh, strange uh, impacts. And when we 
when Robert Kirk is talking about fairies being of an astral nature, we remember that the word astral is associated with the stars. Even in the very conception of the esoteric world, the idea is associated with, with stars, where we come from uh, in, in, in a, an actual sense, a physical sense, but also maybe where we come from, uh, where other beings come from in, in, in an actual sense that, that uh, science may be able to admit. So I, I would urge people to, to have a bit of respect for these things, not to build your roads towards through some of these things just because there's a bit of superstition about them. Uh, you'll get to your places quick enough uh, and you can you can travel around them and, and we have to protect this culture and be a bit more respectful uh, to it and uh, not be so dismissive of it. Well, James Tunney, once again, this has been a very enlightening, enriching conversation with many, many threads. We could pursue this conversation in a number of different directions. And I know in the future, we probably will do that. So once again, thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you, Jeff. And I'm glad I got the chance on behalf of the Reverend Robert Kirk, who's not here, to uh, reassert the fact that he wrote The Secret Commonwealth. And it's great that other people can be informed by it. But it's also nice if they look back on the work that people did uh, in that context beforehand and seemingly with a big heart and it's relevant uh, to today still. Thank you. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.